Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales of the Justice Society of America! Welcome to Tales of the Justice Society of America. If you can believe it, this is episode number 80. 80! I'm completely just blown away by this. And I wouldn't have had any idea if Mike hadn't told me ahead of time what episode number it was. (laughs) (laughs) But I I am honestly blown away by that. 80 episodes. I'm, wow. Never would have happened if you guys hadn't bugged the living hell out of us to bring the show back. Anyway... I'm getting ahead of myself. My name is Scott Gardner, and joining me as always is just just a wonderful guy. <laughs> I was listening to I was telling you how I was listening to ep- old episodes, and there's one that opens up with me saying something, and you were like, "How come you never introduced me as like wonderful or something like that?" <laughs> it was just ridiculous the conversation we were having. So there you go. You're a wonderful guy, Mike. Now it's like two months ago uh, from, you know, people hearing this episode, or, or like a month and a half at least, mm-hmm. from people hearing this episode to when we did The Return. Right. Uh, and in that episode, you and I talked about how um, our language used to be a little saucier oh, man. in the early days. And as I'm going through those episodes, I'm like, oh my god, how many times are Scott and I going to say the F word for no good reason? <laughs> I'm I'm literally I'm shocked by my language in those. And I guess it's just because, you know, through listening to myself, you know, because of editing and everything for like the past I don't know a couple of years. Well, it's got to be about well, it's over three years. I've been with Disney over three years now. So you know, in those three years, trying to clean up my act at least on the air anyway, you know. Um, yeah, and I go back and I listen to those pre-Disney Day podcasts of mine. I'm I'm shocked, and I have to admit, frankly, a little embarrassed by my yeah, language. Me too. I'm like, wow, you know? Uh, not, not that I'm embarrassed by your language, I'm embarrassed by my own. <laughs> uh, just, wanted, just wanted to make that clear, because that could have been taken no, in context I pretty quick. I, you know, hey, no, I mean, even if you had said, yeah, dude, I'm embarrassed by your and I'm, <laughs> I'm with you, dude, because, yeah, uh, frankly, it was like, wow, I, I really had a, a bad mouth on me. And I won't say I, st- I don't still, I'm still working on it in my private life, but professionally, you know, and I say professionally in air quotes, because, you know, come on, this is podcasting, but still, you know, I, I, we ain't getting I, paid. 
Well, I think you and I still, even though, yes, it is podcasting and we're not getting paid and all that, I think we've still, you and I at least, I think we've always tried to bring a more... Um, oh, again, high standard. Pro- yeah, you know, professional's not quite the word, but you know what I'm going for here. You know, a certain standard to, to the shows. And so, again, yeah, listening to those, I, I am. I'm shocked, and I'm, I'm more than a little embarrassed by just how blue we were a lot of the time. And I'm like, wow. Well, we were, it's not that we were different people, but it was very, I, I think uh, one of the things also that I, I re-listened to, and, and I have to agree with, is, you know, this is a kind of a laid-back show. I mean, we're, you know, we're having right. fun. We're, you know, I mean, we, we, we do the synopsis and stuff like that. But I think the heart of the show is just you and I talking. And I think right. because of that, it was almost like the microphone wasn't even on. We were just sitting there like we'd be at a bar together having a beer or something or right. whatever whatever fruity drinks you consume. <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing, too. Is, uh, uh, there's, uh, you know, episodes. I'm trying to remember where I'm at in my re-listen to the to tales because I'm literally listening, you know, right from the beginning. Right, I'm going to listen right up to where we left off just, you know, to kind of refresh myself. Where were we? What was the flow of the show? What were the regular segments? That sort of thing. And where I'm, wherever I'm at right now, one of the last episodes I just listened to, I'm like, at the end of the show, it's so free-flowing and, and just a conversation that I thought to myself consciously, did we forget that we're doing a show or are we just having a conversation? It, it was weird. It was like that, you know? But again, I think those are the things that... I think those are the reasons why everybody loved the show because mm-hmm. they also felt included and sucked into a conversation that you would find yourself having with your fellow geek buddies, you know? A a conversation that would ramble all over the place, but still be related to something in nerd world. I I love that, you know? Yeah, uh, it's why I've I've enjoyed uh, getting into Dinner for Geeks. Oh, yeah. Uh, Another, uh, a sister Two True Freaks show. (laughs) Uh, Just because it literally sounds like me and my friends talking. They're all over the place. Subjects change. Divergences happen. And, you know, they're just just ripping on each other. And it's just, you know, it it, it just feels like you're there with them. Absolutely. Uh, So... uh, Maybe we can, uh, maybe we can, maybe we've recaptured that, I hope so. But you know what we do have? <gasps> well, actually, before we, before we, we get into that, because I know exactly where you're headed, two, two quick housekeeping things here. Um, for one, as Mike said, or started to say, I'm not sure, I think I may have cut you off, buddy, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, this is the first episode that we are recording since the show returned. Now, of course, you guys have heard, what, like half a dozen shows between then and now, but just to kind of let you guys peek behind the curtain a little bit, this is the first one we're recording since the first new episode came uh, has gone up uh, from the hiatus. So just, just kind of let you know where we're at in the, the sliding time scale of this. So the other piece of uh, quick housekeeping is I just want to apologize um, now, this is going to seem really weird, time travel kind of thing here, but hopefully all of this is resolved by the time you're actually hearing this episode. But if I sound funny to you, and I imagine I probably do, it's because I'm not operating with my normal setup. My, uh, my computer tore up on me and my hard drive just decided to give up the ghost. So currently, as we're recording this, um, I have no computer. I'm literally doing this uh, via Skype with, a, with an iPhone and an iPad, so... 
Hopefully it doesn't sound too horrible, but I just want to apologize. I, I, I know it's fine. Okay, well, just to let people know, you know, where we are and what what's going on and that sort of thing. But I really wanted to call you from a phone line so we could say you're on the run. <laughs> you're, you're doing the show from like hotel rooms and stuff like that. So. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm in the same nerd cave I'm always in. And it's weird, too. It's it's weird sitting here in front of a, you know, a, 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 it might as well be a dead monitor. Now, there's nothing wrong with my monitor, of course, but it's not hooked to anything, so it's turned off and depowered and everything. So I'm sitting here like I normally would during a show with all of my notes and all of my books and my iPad in front of me for notes and reference and all the normal things I would have. Except I don't have a microphone in front of me, and the screen is blank in front of me. So it's just kind of, like, weird, you know? It's, it almost feels like I'm operating like like the power was out or something, you know? It's it's just kind of bizarre, but... Don't say power being out. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, that's a sore <laughs> subject with you, isn't it? Three days, dude. Three days with no power. It got cold at night. I tell you. <laughs> and it was colder inside the house than it was outside the house. I don't know how that's possible... But that's how it was. Like, I, I would come home from work, because uh, I, I had to go back to work eventually, and I'd, come, I'd be out, like, outside, and, you know, it's a little bit warm and all that. I'd walk into the house, and it was literally, like, 10 degrees colder than it was outside. And I'm like, how the hell does this happen? You have insulation, right? Yes. So as the house cools down in the, in the evening and gets cold because there's no heat or anything like that, it just gets then the trapped, sun comes yeah. out during the day, and it's beating on the outside of the house, but the inside's not going to warm up as fast because of that insulation. Yeah. Same reason why it didn't cool down as, as quick as the outside. So, it, yeah, it is. It, it's, it sucks because you're, you're getting the double whammy, you know? <laughs> but that's all, that's all in the past, and I will, never, I will never take electricity for granted ever again. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I still insist that the icicle attacked uh, you know, the <laughs> Atlanta area because we got the show back up and running and he didn't want, you know, a JSA celebration, so. So, it, in total, it was out, what, several days? Three days. Three, three days. Uh, a little over 72 hours. Well, hold, hold on to that feeling and, and that appreciation of electricity, because I, I, I've been there and I know what it's like, because one of the last winters I spent... Um, in New York before I moved down here finally and I think it was actually one of those like okay this is the final straw type of things was we had a really bad ice storm in upstate New York that I mean literally like devastated the area where where I grew up and we were without power for god I can't even remember now I'd have to ask my parents if they remember but it was a stretch it was at least a week I want to say like a week and a half maybe even longer I can't remember and it got to one of those scenarios where you start to think about, oh my god, is this one of those like apocalyptic movies or something where we're <laughs> going to end up eating each other or something? Because it was like no power, I mean, at all. No phone, no anything. And we were keeping warm by, we had something called a kerosene heater, which is literally, you poured kerosene into it and lit it and it heated up a room, you know? Mm-hmm. And we ate on that, you know, I mean, as far as like cooking meals and everything, we read by the light of it. Because, and that that was brutal because I'm, I've am i always been a voracious reader, but of course, my parents, not really so much. You know, they're really, you know, they're TV generation. So it was killing them not to have the TV, you know. And 
for a while, for like the first maybe couple of days, it's kind of a novelty and oh, isn't this nice? We can spend some real family time together and Scott, why don't you read to us or whatever? And then after like third or fourth day, you're like, oh my god, I want to kill these people, you know? Day, and day, day five. Yeah, day day five. You know, <laughs> I hate to say it, but Dad's legs looking mighty tasty right about now. I wonder if we have any barbecue sauce. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's like that, that old Bugs Bunny cartoon, where, <laughs> like the two dudes on the on the on the life raft, ex- looking at each other like they're turkeys. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. Yep. You know, Rachel and I actually joked about that, that I would have gone, like, full, like, you know, walking dead mode, like, outside, just hiding. It's just like, <laughs> the power's back on. No, it's not! I've gone wild! Walking around with a with a phone that's connected to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do that anyways, but that's that's entirely beside the point. I wonder if they, if they took advantage of that with the production. Um... Because they literally film right around here. Right. Right. Fayette and Coweta County. So I wonder if they got the cameras out and did like some winter-themed episodes. I keep expecting to see you shambling around on that show, and I'm always a little bit disappointed when it doesn't happen. Well, I guess I could talk to the production guy. There you go. There you go. So, see about being an extra and shambling across one of the schools in Peachtree City where they film and stuff. I imagine even in the zombie apocalypse, you occasionally need, like, I don't know, like, stationary or something, so have them, have them do a raid into the office. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> you know, I know we need food, and we probably want to get some weaponry, but, damn it, I need a notebook. <laughs> and a ballpoint pen. They got computers in there. What do you mean there's no electricity? <laughs> so. There you go. I want that's the episode I want to see right there. Oh, Lord. welcome to Office Depot. <laughs> 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 and then I could and then I could make a make a, a a a small living going to comic shows and having pictures of myself and my there zombie you, makeup. See, it's a win-win, dude. <laughs> Total win-win. But speaking of win-win, we uh, we sent out the call on the returns episode for feedback. Yes. Uh, and uh, we got feedback. So why don't you take the first one? I will. I like this. We uh, Yeah, we did. Thank you guys so much for writing in. Here we go. First one here is by our good friend Trentus Magnus. I, I love <laughs> the, the subject line here. How the Return of Tales Saved My Life, Freedom, Citizenship, and Marriage. (laughs) Hello, sirs. How happy am I that Tales of the JSA is back? Let's see. I was preparing to enter a plea deal for some legal problems I probably shouldn't uh, talk too much about here. Uh, Guilty. (laughs) So let's just get it over with, you know? But then I found out that Tales is coming back, so I decided to fight the charges. And then beat them. Only in America. (laughs) (laughs) Unrelated to the above, let's just say I was having a few problems and misunderstandings with the IRS. I was prepared to relocate to a country that doesn't have exposition? I think he meant extradition. Yeah, I was going to say, that's not the right word. (laughs) And go underground (laughs) until all this blew over. 
But then I found out that Tails was coming back, so I quote-unquote found the documents they were looking for and got everything cleared up. Perhaps due to, uh, due to all of the above, my girlfriend, Stasis Magnus, and I were thinking about taking a break and getting some space and taking some time and getting our heads together, though separately from each other. But then I found out that Tails was coming back, so we rekindled over a candlelit dinner as we listened to old episodes and Scott and Michael regaled us with all kinds of wacky adventures. That Dr. Fate, I tell you, what will he say next? <laughs> during all this trouble, I went through a dark period during which I became very unhappy. But then I found out that Tails was coming back, so I gave some of the IRS evidence, I, I mean some donations to a few local charities, and now I see the happier side of life again. So Tales of the JSA saved my freedom, my citizenship, and my marriage. I'd say I'm happier than anybody else the show is back. His Excellency Magnus. <laughs> Thank you, Trentus. I was amused by Post your letter. Post of Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Also, yes. here at Two True Freaks. Yes. Of which I've been a guest on a couple of times, as have you. Mm-hmm. And gonna be again. So, uh... Next up, we have one from Gord Tolton. Feedback for February 8th, 2014, Tales of the JSA, Scott and Michael. I discovered Two True Freaks, and more importantly, Tales of the JSA, last summer while on a train trip across the U.S. from Montana to Pittsburgh, and on the return trip from Cincinnati. Upon returning home, I devoured the rest of the prepared podcast, and I was one of the many who pestered you to catch up. The symphonic finale to the show will always remind me of the late night speeding through places like Cleveland and Fargo. We almost, I think it's more of a Johnny Cash song. <laughs> I've been everywhere, man. Yeah, there we go, yeah. Being a Westerner, my favorite all-star of the Golden Age, uh, has always been the Vigilante, a character that didn't seem as though Roy Thomas ever cared for, or for that matter, did anybody at DC ever wish to do anything with him other than draw him badly? I was glad to see him revived for the Justice League Unlimited animated series and given the respect he deserves. I was also happy to hear that Scott and Michael find him a good character as well. I always found it sad that Len Wein took the time to revive the Seven Soldiers of Victory from the scrap heap in 1972, then pretty much tossed them back into the scrap heap after plucking out Sylvester Pemberton and ultimately killing him off as well. I'm going to stop it here for a second. Uh, Gord... Go to eBay, go to MyComicShop.com, go to Amazon. There was a Vigilante miniseries mm -hmm. uh, in around 1994 yep. that James Robinson wrote Yep, uh, that always looked really interesting. And he was a background character, supporting character in the 1990 El Diablo series as well. So uh, he's popped up a few times. One of the neatest ones... Uh, and I'm surprised I'm actually saying this. Uh, Robinson brought him back uh, for one of the specials leading up to New Krypton, where Jimmy Olsen was looking for the Guardian. He went to this small town out in New Mexico, and the vigilante who had been de-aged somehow was actually the sheriff out there. And it was actually really kind of neat. So uh, he's out there. It's just you got to kind of look for him. But yeah, I, you really can't do any better than uh, Nathan Fillion doing the voice on Justice League Unlimited. Uh, Especially. 
the way that you you mentioned it made it sound like you have not read that James Robinson vigilante. No. It's awesome. Okay. It was, what was it called? Prairie Lights, Big uh, City Prairie Lights or something some... like that. And it was good. I mean, really good. Yeah, so I've been listening to a lot of Dinner for Geeks. Every time I hear a certain word now, I hear it pronounced as awesome. <laughs> it's just awesome. So, anyway... <laughs> I haven't, uh, getting back to the email, I haven't too much to add to the Green Lantern Crisis interlude that you utilized as your return to the pod waves. Other than in reading this story, it is easy to see the what made Alan Scott such a viable and strong character after so many decades. Unlike the E1 GL Corps, Scott virtually had to learn his craft and build his whole persona, his mission, and as an engineer, even the ring itself. I've often felt the weakness to wood to be a valid one. The Starheart was a living energy, but an alien presence. One that likely no had that had no concept of an organic material derived of the Earth. Likely, the weakness was either an unconsidered or natural defense mechanism of Earth against a presence and a power that could be very easily corrupted. Should the bearer of the Starheart cross a line, all you had to do was grab a Louisville Slugger. That MacGuffin-like weakness, of course, kept Scott kept the Scott character grounded. In comparison, the Hal Jordan weakness to Yellow pre John's retcon was nearly ridiculous. If I were a bad guy in Coast City, I'd just arm myself with a jar of mustard. <laughs> That's all for now. Looking forward to the upcoming episodes. Gore Tolton, Coldale, Alberta, Canada. Awesome. Okay. International listeners. Awesome. Wasn't uh, wasn't the Smallville scenes in Superman the movie filmed in Alberta? Yes. Yep. That's cool. That's very cool. This next one, um, there's really nothing to read, but it is awesome. There's, uh, I'm looking here. Now, I have this as a printout, so correct me if I'm wrong, Mike. I don't see any actual verbiage in this beyond no, the subject line just says, Welcome back. And the picture is taken from one of the limited collector's edition DC comics, one of those big oversized. It's the wraparound cover for Welcome Back, Cotter. But Mike Voiles of Mike's Amazing World changed it to Welcome Back, Tales of the JSA. And he's photoshopped Mike's face, Mike Bailey's face, as Mr. Cotter, and my face as, I think I'm the John Travolta character. Yes, you are You are Barbarino. It's a, Barbar the, the blimp <laughs> says, Welcome to Earth 2. And oh, he yeah. Even, he even changed the text featuring a behind-the-scenes visit on the set of the podcast... Mike's photo album and more. <laughs> now the funny thing about that is that uh, shortly after I moved to Georgia, one of my friends back in uh, Kutztown said that a new professor moved in that looked like the love child of me and and Gabe Kaplan. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I guess you're 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 Saturday Night Fever and uh, I'm not. So that's okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Uh, it could have been worse. I could have been Horshack. So. You really want Chris's face over Horshack, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Chris would totally be that, that character. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mike. That is That was awesome. hilarious. Yes. That was just great. I opened that and just I cracked up. Alright, so since, as I say, there wasn't any verbiage on that one, I'll go ahead and read the next one here. Uh, we have Tales of the Justice Society of America, The Return. 
Hi, Scott and Mike, or Mike and Scott, whichever you prefer. I like Scott and Mike myself. And welcome back. I know you guys didn't go anywhere. I'm surprised you didn't say anything, Mike. I know you guys didn't go anywhere. But everybody's favorite podcast did. Aw, that's very sweet. Thank you. Says, I thoroughly enjoyed the return episode and can't wait for more. Uh, I have always enjoyed Green Lantern number 40. I have it collected in digest form and in Green Lantern archives number 6. I'm going to have to look at it again soon. It's been too long. I enjoyed the new intro to the show. I love graphic audio, and it was cool hearing Richard Rohan recite those familiar words. Do we want to stop right there? Yeah, um, because even though Richard Rohan did a really nice intro to an episode of Views uh, from a couple months ago, uh, and, and, and as great as he is, I mean, he's one, very talented, two, a hell of a nice guy. We reached out to, uh, we, we, we mentioned it before, Scott Rifen of Dinner for Geeks, uh, since he is professional in radio. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he is the one that did our new opening. He gave me like, like 10 cuts, 10 different takes, and I actually cobbled a couple different together. Uh, and he did a fantastic job. He just did an amazing, amazing job. Uh, so we want to thank Scott for taking the time to, to record that for us because he was really game for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just like, do you want to give me any direction? I'm like, dude, you're the professional. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think it would be insulting to tell you what to do. You know, like I'm, I'm just I'm just the guy that does this in my in my spare time. So but right. uh, so as uh, I think it's it's a compliment to be compared to Richard Rowan because he is a he's a great uh, narrator and actor as well. But no, that's Scott Rifen. He is our he is our he is the guy that will be issuing you into every episode from now on because I really got sick of the one where I just pitched myself down <laughs> and uh, yeah yeah Scott is Mister Voice on this particular show so yes. Uh, let's see, continuing here, he says, I don't remember which All-Star Squadron comic we left off with. I think it was number 33? Yes. 33 was what we left off with. Yep. Uh, but I have been collecting and hope to have a full run of the comic eventually. I'm also looking forward to more Crisis on Infinite Earths talk. Great show as always, and can't wait for the next one. And this is from our friend Russell Bragg in Clarksburg, West Virginia. Russell is a uh, podcasting emailer professional. Oh yes, uh, he's uh, he writes into just about every show that I listen to, which is awesome. He's quick becoming that. Who is that guy? Uh, TM Maple. He's quick becoming the TM Maple of uh, of podcasting. The Mad Maple. The Mad Maple. Yep. Alrighty. I wonder if Russell will get that reference or not. I, I hope I'm he sure. Gets it. I'm sure he will. Please be given... punched by it. So <laughs> now. We, uh, the next email I, I'm very happy to have because, yes. it, it, you know, we, we've had a lot of people write in over the years. We've had some regular emailers. Trentus used to write in all the time. Uh, John Wilson. God, I didn't realize how often John Wilson would write into the show. I know. And listen to those old episodes. But one, one gentleman in particular, and I'm not saying he's our favorite because we don't have a favorite because no one's paid us enough. But, um... But one gentleman who just kept coming back just about every week and made Scott and I feel particularly good one episode with uh, with one of his missives, Jose A. Rivera has written in. Uh, his subject line is all caps, WELCOME BACK! 
Uh, and he writes, Hey guys, so Tales of the Justice Society of America, and it's about time. If you could bleep out the curse, it would really crack me up. I get a kick out of that. <laughs> First, let me say welcome back. I'm happy the show is back because, well, I missed it. I take a lot of pride in this show because not only was it was I was I first email you guys ever read, but as I said in that email when I first listened to the show, it was during a really bad time in my life, and for a little while every week I didn't have to think about my problems. Now he's going to make me cry. That's, <laughs> that's what all I'm saying. I just listened to two guys talk about my favorite team. Knowing that it's back is like welcoming old friends back into your home. Sure, I've heard of you two. I've heard you two on other podcasts, but let's face it, it wasn't tales. And that's how we felt as well. You know what the fun part about this being back up is? I can continue my email wars with Luke, John, and whoever else thought they could go 10 rounds with me in writing an email. Yep. As for what you guys said about possibly doing Origins of the Crisis on Infinite Earths, why not either do it every fourth week of the month? He's, he's tapping our phone call, Scott. Uh, this way you could do uh, your regular coverage, but you can still take a break from that and do this, and it still remains kind of a special thing to look forward to. Or in the rare cases that there are five weeks in a month, not do it as a fifth week of it. He has really been... Uh, he must be the NSA guy that listens to us. <laughs> do you think about that guy? That guy that has to listen to our Skype calls? I hope he likes comics. I, I really do. Because if not, I pity that poor bastard. Uh, anyways, Jose continues... I can't wait to hear you guys have in store for us with everything there is to cover, and I'd like to leave on this note. I hope you guys don't skip over the Young All-Stars, because if you do, I swear I will flip out and find a way to fork-stab the both of you until you cry out Neptune Perkins. Your friend, Jose A. Rivera, P.S., just kidding about the fork-stabbing thing, maybe. <laughs> Why the hell would we skip the Young All-Stars? Yeah, oh god, we have to. We gotta, <laughs> that, that finishes it out. <laughs> I think sometimes that people forget that the, the whole impetus for, for this show was that special episode we did of Back to the Bins yeah. about Hugo Danner, of which talk about Young All-Stars was a huge part of that episode. So, yeah, there's no way in hell we're skipping Young All-Stars. We're both itching to get to that one. We like that series, so no worries. I mean, we're going to get to the artist that went on to draw Supreme, an image. I mean, how can you... <laughs> How can you not want to get... Oh, God, that sounded so snarky. I apologize. <laughs> well, I say we take a quick break, play a couple promos, probably for some of the other shows that we mentioned during the, the email section, uh, and then come back because we have the second part of the Earth 3... Uh, Earth S, excuse me, Earth 2 crossover. Yes. So we'll be right back. Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's dinner for geeks. 
Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Trennis Magnus punches reality. Comics, movies, and TV shows. Trennis Magnus punches reality. The People's Geeky Podcast. Trennis Magnus punches reality. Celebrating 50 ball-smashing episodes. Trennis Magnus punches reality. Episode 50, coming July 1st, 2014. Only at twotruefreaks.com. I'm not kidding around either. If I ever find out my show's been syndicated on some other podcast network without my permission, I'll sue a motherfucker. Calabac, Tassad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Dittrick, and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. Alrighty, folks, we are back with All-Star Squadron number 37. 37 in a row? Well, not really, but still. <laughs> you know, you, you know, I had to go there. You know, it occurs to me that we're about halfway through the series at this point. Oh, don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> Guess what day it is. <laughs> Guess what day it is. Anyways. Oh, dude, I saw somebody wearing a shirt for that today, and I was like, where did you get that shirt? I got to get one for my wife, because she loves that commercial, dude. <laughs> loves that commercial. My- my wife doesn't because she doesn't like when I go, guess what day it is. <laughs> In fact, she's yelling, stop it right now. So have you seen the movie version of that one? No. Like it's playing in theaters. No. Instead of him saying hump day goes movie day. It, it's, <laughs> I love, I actually like that one better than the hump day one. I think it's great. <laughs> so this is lightning in Berlin. It has a cover date as does the infinity incorporated issue. We're going to be discussing just down the way of September 1984. It was released on June 28th, 1984. The credits on this bad boy are Roy Thomas, writer-editor, Arvel Jones and Richard Howell, guest artists, L. Lois and Orr's letter. That's really kind of strange. Um, Gene D'Angelo doing the colorist. Uh, no Cardi, no Cody. Uh, I'm, I'm very disappointed. <laughs> the uh, quote for this issue is never was so much owned by so many to uh, owed excuse me never was so much owed by so many to so few winston churchill 1940 
The Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, Wonder Woman, Superman, Batman, and Plastic Man flank Mary Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr., who have just revealed their costume selves at the end of the previous issue. Green Lantern and Superman are going all are all gung-ho to grab the kids and not let them go while Batman is willing to hear them out. Superman, is having, it, Superman isn't having any of that and threatens some corporal punishment, even going so far as to grab the two younger heroes. They've had about enough of this and fly Superman into the air. Wonder Woman grabs Mary by the ankle via her magic lasso while Green Lantern envelops Junior in a bubble. Wonder Woman, Hawkman, and Batman continue to be like, Jesus, Superman, calm the f*** down already! And the Man of Steel admits that his recent pounding at the hands of the Nazi Superman, really Captain Marvel, might be making him a little more hot-headed than usual. The bleeping was for us and for Jose. Mary finally gets a chance to tell their side of things, which started when Captain Marvel, Mary, and Junior were flying around, and Junior was trying to see if he was related to Mary in any ways, because he totally has the hots for her, but wants to make sure it's not icky. Suddenly, Captain Marvel is hit by a mysterious bolt of lightning, and then disappears. Junior and Mary double-time it to the abandoned subway tunnel, where Billy Batson was led to all those years ago, and managed to contact the wizard Shazam. He proves to be less than useful, though he does tell them that Captain Marvel was taken to another Earth. Using their shared powers, Junior and Mary travel to Earth 2, and, well, here they are. Wonder Woman proposes that Marvel must have teleported inside the Third Reich, and we are reminded once again that Hitler holding the Spear of Destiny and the Japanese holding its Grail counterpart, that any magic-based hero and Superman, for some odd reason becomes agents of evil when they enter Germany or Japanese airspace. Flash proposes taking the kids across that line, but to do so without them becoming bad guys, they transform back to Freddie Freeman and Human Mary. The kids, along with Hawkman, Flash, Batman, and Plastic Man, who is providing transportation as a Plastic Man dirigible, head over enemy lines, leaving Superman, Green Lantern, and the rest behind, and boy do they feel lousy about it. Later, the heroes land at Hitler's Reich Chancellery Building. I hope I pronounces that right. Pronounces? See, I can't even do that right. And sneak in. They make their way through the building, and after overhearing some officers and guards joking about Italians, Flash takes them out, and they find a bound and gagged Billy Batson. Mary is quick to point out that he needs to keep his mouth shut, not to say Shazam, as Billy tries to explain that there's something they don't know. Suddenly, Captain Marvel bursts into the room, followed by Hitler himself. And soon we find that when Captain Marvel was transported to Earth 2, he was split into the human Billy and the superhuman, but now Nazified, Captain Marvel. <laughs> Apparently a Nazi scientist named Gutzen was the genius behind the machine, and soon after a backstory is finished, everyone is brought to Gutzen's lab, where... <laughs> Sorry, I'm suddenly having a flashback to Apollo, uh, Apollo 13. I wonder where Gunther went. Um... <laughs> uh, is brought to Gutzton's lab, where Mary and Junior are similar, similarly separated from their heroic identities. Hitler's plan is simple. The now-controlled Marvel family will deliver one of the most destructive bombs ever devised. With the crowd shouting, Heil Hitler! They take off to do just that. Inside, Flash, Hawkman, and Batman have had enough waiting and launch into an attack against their Nazi captors. They grab the kids, and soon everyone is back in the Plastic Man Express and head back to Britain. Back in London, Superman's brooding catches the eye of Winston Churchill. As the Prime Minister discusses this with Green Lantern and Wonder Woman, the Marvels, 
and the dangerous cargo appear in the skies above the city. Superman, Green Lantern, and Wonder Woman launch into action. GL and Wonder Woman take on Junior and Mary, respectively, as Superman once again confronts Captain Marvel. Marvel punts the bomb towards a more inhabited area of London, and while Superman gets a good right cross in, he isn't sure if he can get to the bomb in time. With Green Lantern and Wonder Woman's help, Superman is able to keep the explosion from doing any major damage, but the blast knocks all three heroes to the ground. The now evil Marvel family use this as their chance to get the heroes and kill them all. Meanwhile, Batman and crew are shot down over the white cliffs of Dover, but manage to recover quickly. But Plastic Man becomes a life raft, and Flash acts as their propeller until he and Plastic Man are both shot by a Nazi warship. The Nazis' intentions are pretty clear when the heroes are informed that everybody, even the kids, are to die. Billy says that it looks like the cavalry isn't coming, but suddenly Superman, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Captain Marvel, Mary Marvel, and Captain Marvel Jr. fly in and make short work of the Nazi warships in the area. After the battle is over and Superman has told the Nazis to tell Hitler that there's plenty more of that particular can of whoop-ass came from, the visitors from Earth-S are faced with a problem. What if they are stuck, separated, as six different people? Billy has an idea. Now that they are free of the Spear of Destiny's influence, why don't they all say their magic words at the same time and see what happens? And so with four Shazams and two Captain Marvels, the least realistic-looking lightning bolt this side of that waste of space Johnny Thunder comes crashing down, and in their wake, the Marvel family is gone. The heroes discuss this with Superman doing a bit of metatextual questioning of whether or not he could have beaten Captain Marvel even if they had gone on fighting for a decade. Hawkman asks if it, if it is really that important, and Superman replies that now that Hawkman mentions it, no, not really. In fact, if Superman and Captain Marvel ever meet again, he hopes it's his friends. Wonder Woman adds that if that is the case, she hopes Superman and Captain Marvel meet again very soon. Next issue, Amazing Man. <laughs> So do you have the All-Star Companion notes for this one? I do, actually. All right. Historical notes on this one from the All-Star Companion Volume 2. We've got, this issue represents the first All-Star Squadron work of Arvel Jones, who would later become the mag's regular penciler. And uh, I don't know about you, Mike. I dig this guy's art style. I Absolutely. really do. Uh, the story is set soon after Mary Batson first became Mary Marvel in Captain Marvel Adventures number 18 from December 1942, which reflected events that had occurred months earlier. It makes sense considering a December-dated comic went on sale in the fall, was printed in the summer, and wouldn't have been uh, prepared in the sp- wouldn't and would have rather been prepared in the spring if not earlier. Superman, like many readers, uh, finds it hard to understand why he's susceptible to magic. And it's, there's a quote here from the issue. Ma and Pa Kent found me in a, uh, as a baby in a rocket, not on a magic carpet. That weakness, like the various shades of kryptonite, had grown out of a need to keep the ever more powerful man of, flip the page, steel from resolving every problem uh, on page one of each story. Uh, I'm going to actually uh, talk more about this uh, when we get to my notes here. 
A German officer tells an anti-Italian joke, something Nazis were given to since Mussolini's forces had proven so ineffectual compared to the Nazis. Green Lantern calls the attacking Marvels the Little Rascals, a bit of an anachronism since the comedy shorts later shown under that name on TV were originally titled Our Gang. Roy Thomas refers in the letters page to the fact that he has uh, uh, that he now has the additional post at DC Comics of Earth 2 editor, courtesy of managing editor Dick Giordano. Other uh, writers and editors now had to clear Earth 2 related events through him. It was, incidentally, an unpaid position. And I'm wondering if that's in answer to the fact that they were doing those whatever happened to stories that were pissing Roy off at the time because they weren't cleared through him and they were uh, interfering with some of the plans that he had for things that he was doing with the characters in uh, All-Star Squadron. Do you know anything about that? Well, they had been doing those back earlier than this book was extant. So they were doing those back as far as 1980. Right. But I I remember reading something, it was probably Back Issue Magazine, but I remember reading something about that at one time, that that Roy really was not happy with those stories. That there was something something going on there that I, I don't know if he felt that they needed to necessarily clear it with him, but just that it, it did. I, I can't remember which specific character. Maybe Robot Man. Yeah, that, well, Robot was, Man would make sense. Yeah, he was just not happy that you know he was planning. He was either planning to do things or was doing things with the characters, and and these things were at the very least spoiling ahead in the story of these characters. And then sometimes I guess outright contradicting things that, you know, he wanted to do with the characters. And so I just wondered if maybe this was kind of, uh, in answer to that whole thing, but I I don't know. It doesn't, that part of it, it doesn't really address. Um, looking at the other ones here to see if there's anything relevant and no, not really as well as the, uh, the text pieces here with the historical notes, there's often notes related to, uh, you know, there's art pieces here and sometimes there's relevant notes with those too, but not really in this case, although they do reprint the, uh, the one splash page with everybody attacking the Nazi subs, uh, and glorious black and white. And that's a great piece of art. I love that. Yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Just fantastic. But that's it for uh, for historical notes in here. Um, did you want me to cover my notes? You're running, yeah, go about? ahead and do yours. Oh, okay. All right. Give me one second. I gotta re uh, bring up my notes. So here we go. All right. So, um, starting right at the beginning of the book here, I have to say I don't like this cover as much as the prior uh, prior issues cover. I like it, but I think the I'm not sure exactly what it is. It's not the art, per se. It's uh, something about the layout. I, I just don't think it's as clean a layout as the one last time around, but it is good. I think if it was just more isolated to just Superman and Cap, I'd like it that much better. Yeah. But it looks like Superman's actually, like, punching Cap. And Cap, I think he's supposed to be punching, but it actually looks more like he's just trying to hold Superman back. Yeah. But it is Either that good. or a clunk him on the head. <laughs> And no cover that features uh, Captain Marvel Jr. can be all bad, because I really do dig that character a lot. But that said, I really like the interior art in this uh, in this comic. And 
basically had to talk myself out of making notes about what I liked because it came down to basically like every page or almost every yeah. panel had something I loved in the art. So I basically had to just stop doing that. But right out of the gate, I love hot-headed Superman in this. Yes. Because he he straddles the line with he he's he's very close to being almost kind of a dick in this. Yeah. But I I will say he doesn't quite go all the way. He's just hot-headed. He's I think his ego is wounded, you know? He got his butt kicked by Captain Marvel Jr. or excuse me, by Captain Marvel rather, and I think he's really smarting because of it and he's itching for a rematch. And I like that. I like seeing a very, very human side of Superman in this story. And as I've said many times before, pissed off Superman to me is just, for one, it's cool because you don't see it all that often. But also, he's damn scary when he just loses his temper. And in this, he's so close to just going off. I really like it. It, it adds a whole new dimension to, to this particular character that I really like. And the art. It is just fantastic. I really love the way Superman looks in this particular story. Um, Hawkman, at one point, and I'm sorry, I don't have the actual page or panel where this happens, but Hawkman calls Superman old friend. Now, I know that that's one of those... Oh, here it is here. It's on page three. It's the fourth panel. He just says, Wonder Woman's right, old friend, and then he goes on to say some more stuff. And I'm thinking, these guys, have they really even known each other all that long at this point? Because this is 1942. The team just formed. How long has Superman and, and Hawkman known each other? Long enough to, to call each other old friend or old chum? I don't I don't think so, do you? Uh, I don't know, maybe known each other a year? Yeah. I mean, how many other superhero friends does he have? So. Right, yeah, exactly. It just seemed a little odd to me. I could maybe buy that with Superman and Batman, but Superman and Hawkman? Are they particularly close or chummy? I didn't think Not so. Not really. Yeah. Uh, you know, they... No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, page five had one of my favorite gags of the entire issue. Uh, the third panel where Wonder Woman says, only one thing to do, hop aboard my invisible plane. And uh, Mary Marvel's thinking, invisible plane? Where? I just love that. It's invisible. You can't... You, know, I just, I, you can't see it. Exactly. It's, it's, it's actually why in uh, the New Frontier movie it was used to great effect because she was bleeding inside of it. Right. right. I was, that, I was like... That scared the crap out of me, actually. <laughs> I just thought that was an invisible plane. Where? It's invisible. <laughs> okay, here we go. Nitpick of the issue. Plaz as a blimp. <laughs> uh, not a blimp, sir. A dirigible. No. No, no, no. Now, how how, how does that work? Because yeah, it makes this, it this... look here like he just holds his breath or something and becomes a hot air Then It doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it it this never really I don't like it when I really don't like it when Plastic Man is, you know, he's basically omnipotent. I mean, we were talking in the last episode he's hiding like as a as like a cigarette or a soda machine or something. Right. 
and now he can somehow fill himself with some kind of lighter than air gas and float a bunch of heroes across into Germany and get there in record time. I mean, he, I mean, they're booking, they're there in the same evening. Right. So how long did he, uh, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> I would think that even plastic man has to breathe. You would think. Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. That just kind of, that, like I'm often saying on this show, I, I can, I can stomach a lot of stuff. I, I can, I can accept a lot of things, but every once in a while, there's just one of those things is like, ah, I'm sorry, that's a bridge too far. And Plastic Man as a dirigible was just a bridge too far. I was like, nah, come on, you're being silly here. Because just because you hold your breath, doesn't mean that suddenly you can become a hot air balloon. It doesn't, it doesn't work. I'm sorry. Um, page 13. Where did Hitler go? He was there and he was gloating and he was, you know, doing his whole evil villain thing. And then all of a sudden the heroes decide to fight back. And from there forward, uh, Hitler's gone, and the next time we see him, I think he is when he's actually, let's see here, page 14, he's, he's on the phone making calls, and then when we see him again, he's, he's like in a different part of the bunker and all that, but we never actually saw him, like, slip out or anything, so I was a little bit confused by that. You would think that the minute the heroes hold their, okay, let's, you know, let's break free, let's do our thing, that Hitler would be like one of the first targets because you know, you've got, you know, the flash goes into action and takes out one of the Nazis with a machine gun. You've got Hawkman goes into action and he's knocking everybody about. If Hawkman's going to punch anybody, wouldn't it be Hitler? You know, the head guy. And, I mean, we all want to see it happen. Yeah. But it's just strange that, you know, Hitler just suddenly he's just not there. And I just thought that was weird. It's like, where did he go, and how did he how did he manage to slip out of the room, and nobody noticed? You know, not the Flash, not Hawkman, not Batman, nobody. And they don't even make a mention of it. Like, hey, stop Hitler! You know, nobody says anything. It's just, it's one of those things where I, I notice this every now and again in comics, where like, I, I think sometimes maybe the the writer when they when they write these and kind of lose track of the characters. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we're just not supposed to notice, but I couldn't help but Either notice. that or you had to get Hitler out of there because otherwise they'd take out Hitler. Right, exactly, yeah. We're over, so. Yeah, and we weren't we weren't supposed to catch it, apparently, but I did. I caught it. Uh, let's see, next notes. Panel, panel two on page 16. I'm trying to remember what my note was here. Oh, here it is. So, Wonder Woman lassos uh, Mary Marvel with her magic lasso and she says by Neptune's trident no one's ever slipped out of uh, been able to slip out of my lariat before and Mary Marvel says our powers are based on a magic even more ancient than your glorified noose Amazon and I'm like what where are they where's that coming from because yeah I didn't think anybody could do that What, slip out of it, or...? Well, not just so much... Well, yeah, pretty much, because I'm sure I've read stories where Wonder Woman got 
Captain Marvel in her in her uh, magic lasso other times. So this just seemed a little bit convenient to me, but I, I don't know. It seems like during War of the Gods or some some event at some point we fought and she she got him in her lariat at least one other time that I can think of, but I don't know. I just thought that was a little bit odd. Um. Oh, I loved panel three, the very next panel, where Cap and Superman confront each other again mm-hmm. since the last issue. And I just love Cap. You know, you very seldom see him, you know, where he's not just being all goody-goody. But this time he basically tells Superman like it is. He says, didn't you, uh, didn't you learn your lesson when I stomped you into the ground, pal? I just love that. <laughs> I was like, no one talks to Superman like that. I just thought it was great. Captain Marvel does. Yeah, Captain Marvel does. And, oh, I had to correct you, by the way. You said that, okay, so Captain Marvel dropkicks the bomb toward Parliament. And you said that right uh, Superman gets in a good right cross. Dude, that's a left cross. <sighs> really? <laughs> I'm sorry. Really? I couldn't, couldn't help but notice it. It's okay. <laughs> Page 17, panel 4. I don't know what the hell my note was about that I put on this. Page 17, panel 4. Wow, what the hell was my note about here? All right, so it's this panel of Superman trying to stop the bomb. It says, Amazon Might, dedicated upon the altar of Aphrodite to strive for a peace with uh, justice in a world world, ruled by warlike men. An eerie magic ring carved from an ancient emerald lantern and governed by uh, only by the willpower of its wielder. Alien sinews spawned upon a distant planet, their possessor unaware of uh, as yet of even the name of his obliterated birthplace. I don't know what the hell my note was about on this page. I just said... Maybe you just wanted to read that. Or I, maybe that was it. I don't know. I really don't know what the hell that was about. Maybe I was questioning the fact that did Superman not know the name of his birth? But no, I knew. Not at this point. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. That wouldn't come for years. So I, sorry about that. I don't know what the hell my note was about there. Page 19. Oh, this was one of my favorites here. Page 19, where Plaz as a blimp gets shot, gets hit by a, by a shell. He gets shelled out of the sky. All the heroes drop into the English Channel, and Plaz forms himself, reforms himself into a raft and the Flash is at the back of the raft kicking his legs to make like a motorboat. Where have we seen this? Not long ago. Where? Dude, this is right out of The Incredibles, or rather The Incredibles. Oh, yeah. Right from here. This is the part where... uh Elastigirl forms herself into a raft, and Dash kicks his legs to make like the engine of a boat. You're absolutely And they make their right. way to the island. I saw this, and I was like, damn, that's cool. I mean, it's exactly the same scene, and I thought that was really, really cool. And it looks like Hawkman's going in to kind of grope Flash <laughs> in <that> image. <laughs> let me push your, uncomfortable. Let me push your nads and help you out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I don't see how this is helping. It's helping me. Well, the oh, Flash God. looks, too, like he's going, whoa, no, stop, stop. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Hold on there. Cowboy. Whoa. <laughs> uh, page 21, my note is just simply, wow. Yeah. Because it's a 
full page splash. Here's the scene for you, folks, just to paint the picture. It's awesome. You've got several Nazi subs. You've got uh, Nazi planes flying around and everything. And you've got all the best heroes in this scene just doing their thing. So you've got Superman smashing straight through a sub. You've got GL and Captain Marvel Jr. taking out another sub. You've got Mary Marvel flying through a sub. Captain Marvel's actually lifting a sub out of the water on his own. Wonder Woman's lassoing uh, one of the Nazi fighters. You've got Hawkman. I don't know what the hell he's doing. He's throwing some people into the water or something. But it's so busy, but awesome. I mean, it's just so well done. The coloring's great. The art's fantastic. I, the look on Superman's face is priceless. I also love that you see what's going on through the invisible jet. Yes. So, which I just think is a fantastic uh, visual. Mm. I mean, it's just this is just everything you want to see in a story like this. Yeah. It's great. I really like this because... This gives you a small taste of how things would have gone uh, without the uh, Spear of Destiny to hold these guys back. Because in this particular instance, the, the Nazis are on our side of the line. And so these heroes are free to really cut loose and take the bastards out. And I love that. And I like that Superman, you know, he gets in a little... You know, a little moment here where he screams at them after he's, you know, taken them out and the guys are all in a drink and everything. And he's saying, you know, tell Defira there's plenty more where that came from. I love that. But he follows it up by thinking to himself, just wish I'd get the chance to tell him personally. So you can feel in his body language in that shot, you can feel his frustration that, yes, he mm -hmm. got a chance to unleash. But damn it, I wish I could do more. I just uh, there's so much being told by his body language in that pose. It's really fantastic. Absolutely. Now, I don't know if we talked about this last time around. It seems like maybe we did. Um, about how do you think? How do you feel? Or how do you think stories like these went down post crisis? Did we talk about that last time around? Yes, we did. Okay. All right. So we'll skip past that. Um, so there was something that was mentioned in here that got me to thinking, is this, inf is this implying that only magically-based heroes are susceptible to the Spear of Destiny and or the Holy Grail? Yes. I thought it was everybody. It's I thought not it was all super-powered beings. Super-powered, yeah. May it's been so long since we've read those issues. Right. But it just got me to thinking about it here because, I mean, obviously the Flash and Hawkman and Batman did not fall under Nazi sway. So why the hell aren't they over there right now? Exactly. That was my, <laughs> that was kind of my point is that granted Superman, Hawkman, or excuse me, Batman, Hawkman and the Flash are no Superman, but they're no pussies either. I mean, no. Batman at the very least is. I mean, I would think Batman's fully capable of operating behind enemy lines and potentially taking Hitler out, I would think. Now, maybe I'm giving him a lot more credit than he deserves, but I like to think of Batman that way. He's supposed to be this master, you know, crime fighter and all that. I would like to have seen, at least like to have seen him try, partner him with 
Hawkman and the Flash, I would think that's a pretty formidable team. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, it just it kind of baffled me because I thought the whole point of the Spear of Destiny was to keep all of the JSA and the All-Stars out. And then in this, I don't know if this is a retcon or, or if I just didn't understand the original setup to this, but it seems like finding out here that, no, 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 this is really just to keep, like, Superman, Wonder Woman, all the big guns away, Green Lantern, all the guys that were the most powerful guys. That still leaves a hell of a lot of people that could potentially still have banded together and gone after Hitler, I would think. Yeah. So I was a little bit confused by that. Um, my last thing on this is more of a point of discussion, so if you want to hold this till a little bit later, we, we can do that, but I, I just... It really got me to thinking. I'm very curious what you think about this, Mike. How would you have felt if it had been revealed at some point, like say, well, since we're pre-crisis, we'll say in pre-crisis continuity, how would you feel if it had been revealed that part of Superman's deal with magic was that he was at least partially magically powered? Like somehow magic really did factor into his abilities and his his powers. (laughs) I wouldn't have liked that. I mean, it's just, you know, he's one, he's a science fiction character. Right. Uh, you know, on a fantastical level, don't get me wrong, but you know, his, his whole origin is rocketed from another planet. And when you start adding magic into it, I, I just always like the explanation that Superman is vulnerable to magic, just like everybody else. Like, even though he's Superman, he can still, you know, be bitten by a vampire or something like that. It adds drama to the story. So I never really had a problem with him being vulnerable to magic. I, I do like his frustration at it. It's just like, I was I was found in a rocket, not a flying carpet. It's like suddenly he's bones from Star Trek or something. <laughs> you know, I'm science fiction, not magic, damn it. Um but no, I, I I don't think I would have liked that at all. I don't think I would have bought it at all because it just it just seems like contrary to everything that 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 kind of the character stands for. So I wonder what the deal was with him and magic. I mean, you know, as Roy Thomas said, you know, they had to give him some vulnerabilities, especially as he became yes. more and more powerful. But at the same rate, to my recollection, I don't think there was ever a true explanation given, like an like an incontinuity explanation. He just was vulnerable. But, it, you know, it's one of the few instances where I, I actually would have liked a little bit more explanation on that and didn't ever feel like we really got it. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, they always explained it that Superman, like all living beings, is so... I guess that's their out. I guess, but not all other living beings could like fly through the sun and push planets around and stuff either. So <laughs> a little bit more would have been nice. But this that's is all true. I got. Um, I like the cover as well. I can see that it's not as dynamic as the uh, last one, but the last one was at day. This is at night. Right. Uh, you've got Big Ben, uh, so you know you're in London. Because uh, if you're gonna do a story in london you gotta have big ben <laughs> that and you know other landmarks the the first page like you i really like the way superman looks mm-hmm. just sitting there the cape 
And just, you know, Arvell Jones and Richard Howell did a really good job with Superman throughout the entire... Everybody actually looked really good. I also like the fact that it's Batman going, whoa, 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 hey, 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 guy, come on, <laughs> chill out a little bit. The, uh, page two, it looks like Superman's throwing a giant hissy fit as they fly him off. It's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Like, put me down. Uh, I also like the fact that we get something from the cover in the issue on page three of uh, Captain Marvel Jr. getting enveloped into that bubble. Yeah. Uh, page four. I'm sorry, it just seems like Captain Marvel Jr. is trying to see if it's okay for him to hit on Mary Marvel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we're not related, right? This reminds me of when my sister Mary got married and a cousin from my mom's side of the family and my cousin from my dad's side of the family, who are in no way related at all, kept asking everybody if they were related so that they could make out later. So it's kind of funny to me. I also like the fact that they go to ask the wizard Shazam on this page, and he's like, I got nothing. <laughs> um, can't tell you anything. He's on another earth. Deuces. So you fat lot of good you did. Uh, like you, I, I have a serious problem. With uh, Plastic Man as the dirigible. I also have, we have this, like, you know, quote-unquote modern art. Uh, but then on page six, the lightning bolts look like they just cut and pasted something from an old yeah. issue of Wiz Comics. And it just kind of took me out of the artwork for a second uh, there. But, you know, what I'm not a huge problem, not really going to complain too much. Uh, page seven, I love them sneaking through the building, especially with Batman kind of in the lead. Like this is his, this is his milieu. Well, see, uh, this is my point right here is that they actually, you know, with no superpowers in the team and it, it's essentially Batman, the flash, Hawkman, plastic man, and a couple of kids make it all the way to the right chancellery building. So if they can do that in this, why the hell can't they do that any other time? Go for Hitler, man. Yeah, that is, you know, I guess it's one of those things we're not supposed to think about. <laughs> exactly, much, so. that's exactly it, yes. Uh, page 9, Captain Marvel looks absolutely awesome uh, as he bursts <laughs> through the building. That's just, just great. It's I think great. that owes back um, to, uh, what's his name, Don Newton's version of yeah. from uh from World's Finest. But and and then going forward, you can see a little bit of Tom Mandrake's yeah. Captain Marvel in there too, just yeah. with the shadowing and everything. Because I always thought Mandrake did such a great Captain Marvel. Mm -hmm. I agree. The uh, I like how they just don't explain how they were able to split him into two people. It's just we split him into two people. Don't think about it too much. It's a transporter so. malfunction. Yeah. <laughs> and then they were able to recreate that malfunction again. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, what <laughs> what came back uh, didn't live very long. <laughs> so, so <laughs> page four. <laughs> I figured you'd like that. Uh, page fourteen. I love the shot of Superman just standing there looking pissed, and uh, Winston Churchill being, um, is he okay? Because <laughs> he looks kind of mad. And then the fight with the 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 Marvel family is just fantastic. Love how basically Superman looks scared on page eighteen as they're coming into the, for the kill. Like you know, he 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 can't do anything else. But mm -hmm. the art of them falling looks so Neil Adams ish. Yeah, especially Superman. It's just great and just 
The only disappointing piece of art, and this isn't really disappointing, is on page 20, the panel where all the heroes are coming to the rescue. I felt like that kind of deserved its own page. Yeah. But this was an era where you wouldn't have followed a full-page splash with another full-page splash. Uh, I like how Jones and Howell, on this page specifically, draw a young Jay Garrick. You know, we're so used to in this era seeing him with the you know the gray sideburns and right. kind of looking older. He looks like just a young guy here, and it really came through in the art. Uh, like you, we we gushed over page twenty one. I mean, if I was going to own a piece of art from this uh, issue, that would be the one. The um, the the only disappointing thing about this issue and this story is at the end. The Marvel family just goes back. Yeah. And they're just gone. And there's no, like, shot of them on Earth-S going, Ah, we made it. We're back to normal. And everything's okay. Uh, though that that's kind of made up with Superman, with Thomas through Superman making kind of a dig at the, the, the uh, lawsuit that went on for ten years between uh, DC and uh, Fawcett Publishing. And I like the fact... I don't know if Roy Thomas like added this as kind of a dig at the art or if he wrote it specifically so they would draw it, but I wasn't kidding. I took it right from the issue when it said next instant three of the least realistic looking lightning bolts this side of Johnny Thunder right. come crashing down. Right. So uh I I I added waste of space. But uh yeah, so uh in the letters column, there is an addenda and errata from Roy Thomas. So felt compelled to mention a couple of hopefully minor goofs in issue 32. First off, a caption in page 6, panel 16, narrated by Midnight, stated he knew of Baron Blitzkrieg from accounts of his attack on Churchill in late September-ish number 7. However, since Midnight and Dollman were both on Earth-X by that time, that was clearly impossible, as I realized when I proofread the story later. Alas, a note to remove that caption was somehow missed while the book was in production, so it accidentally got printed. Sorry about that. Also, our thanks to old friend Don Thompson, now with wife Maggie, editor of the Comics Buyer's Guide, Comics Fandom's major ad newspaper, for pointing out an anachronism that slipped willy-nilly into number 32. As Don correctly states, Midnight and I should have never referred to their their to sci-fi mags, not just because the term sci-fi sends true science fiction fans up the wall like chalk across a blackboard, either. As an SF fan myself, I already knew that, though that doesn't mean it would have been common knowledge back in 1942. No, it seems that as Don says, that hated term was the brainchild of Forrest J. Ackerman, founding editor of the late lamented magazine Famous Monsters, circa 1957. Actually, I guess I should have gone by my first instinct and used a term I knew was more of ancient vintage, uh, the truly awful word scientifiction, coined by Hugo Gernsback, editor of the very first science fiction magazine, Amazing Stories, around 50 years ago. Well, live and learn. Glad to hear you enjoyed the issue. Otherwise, Don, and continued good health. Guess we didn't pick up on that at all. <laughs> no. Well, it's funny, too, because, uh, you know, sci-fi has become... 
Uh, I mean, it's pretty commonly used these days, and I don't think I've ever met anybody that's taken uh, any objection to that term. So it's funny that apparently at this time there were people that really hated the term, but I, I won't profess to understand the hate because I, I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, I, I've i I've heard of that. I, I've read of uh, uh, Peter David talking about that. Hmm. Uh, how, you know, some sci-fi fans are so derisive of it, they refer to it as skiffy. Uh, I don't care, uh, in, in, in all honesty. So, I don't have a dog in that race. Exactly, yeah. I, that was kind of my point. I, I don't either, and I don't really understand the whatever the issue is supposed to be there, but... Anyway, speaking of issues, I dug the hell out of this story. I really, yes. really enjoyed it. You know, both chapters put together. The, you know, if there's if there's one, um, quote unquote, serious criticism I would have, I would change the thing of of Cap being a comic book character in Earth Two's world. But beyond that, I mean, I really did dig this. And I was noticing as you were going over your notes, I, I was purposely flipping back through the story again. And it does look like nearly every single panel, nearly every single shot of the dirigible, you know, of Plaz as a dirigible. Hawkman is, now I thought Hawkman was just providing the propulsion for Plaz to get around. But now I kind of wonder if Plaz maybe is just taking the shape of a dirigible but it's actually Hawkman in his multi-purpose nth metal that is providing the actual lift. I, I guess that's a possible no no prize, but yeah, I, I just you know, being fair, I just thought I should point that out that I did happen to notice that. But anyway, that's pretty much all I had on this. I like I say, I dug the hell out of it. I really really enjoyed this story and i find it very funny that at the end uh superman's like well if we ever meet again we'll probably be friends nope every time you're gonna meet again you're pretty much gonna beat the hell out of each other which is the way it should be i love that <laughs> i love it absolutely and uh i like the portrayal of captain marvel in this i really do in, in a lot of ways he's just as much a hothead as superman is especially when you you put the two of them in the same room but i like that I like that a lot. I, I, I just I get a kick out of seeing these two guys wail on each other. I love the both of them, but I, I love the fact that you get them both together and all they want to do is fight. <laughs> There's just something fun about that. I agree completely. Enjoyable, enjoyable, enjoyable two issues. Mm -hmm. This was. This was good stuff. Well, what do we want to do now? Well, you've got Infinity Incorporated <gasps> number six. I do. Let me bring up my uh, notes here. All right, so we're going to go ahead. We'll dive straight into this Infinity Incorporated number six. This is the September 1984 cover dated issue on sale June 21st, 1984. Cover on this is by Jerry Ordway, and uh, it's really cool. You've got the Infinitors. You've got uh, Nuclon, the Huntress, the Silver Scarab and Northwind, they're standing in this alley looking at a wanted poster, wanted, the Justice Society of America and Silver Scarab, he's kind of crumpling up the one that's on the wall. Norda actually has one crumpled up in his fist, and Silver Scarab is saying, 
and we've got to bring them in. And Norda is saying, dead or alive. It's a really And cool everyone thing. else goes, Norda, stop trying so <laughs> hard. It's funny you should say that, because I have a note pretty much to that effect. Like, Norda, just, just don't, all right? Just stop. Because you're, you're just not, no. Just knock it off. <laughs> so anyway, original cover price on this one, $1.25. Roy Thomas was the writer slash editor. Jerry Ordway, the penciler. Dan Thomas, co-plotter. Uh, co now, Dan Thomas is actually a female name. That is uh, Roy Thomas's wife. Uh, Cody is the letterer. And Anthony Tollin is the colorist. And special thanks to Al Gordon, inker, for filling in for Mike Macklin for this issue. Divide and Be Conquered, Part 6 of the Generations Saga. Roll call for this issue. We have the Silver Scarab, Fury, Northwind, Nuclon, the Huntress, the Flash, Power Girl, and Superman. And we may even ha actually have other people. I started my... Uh, roll call just going from the beginning of the story and uh i think i failed to keep up with it through the entire story so there may be actually be more characters than uh that i actually made notations on here anyway at the city morgue in mayberry rfd the <laughs> silver scarab and fury arrive just in time to assist nuclon who is struggling to keep from being crushed and or impaled by the spiky death trap he and his unconscious teammates the huntress and northwind were left in by Green Lantern last issue. Despite their added strength, however, Silver Scarab and Fury are unable to stop the device, only hold it back. Silver Scarab rescues the Huntress and Northwind from the trap, and just when it's looking kind of bleak for Nuclon, Jade and Obsidian show up to lend a hand too. Working together, the brother-sister team are surprised to find that they are able to neutralize the construct, further adding to the evidence that they are indeed Green Lantern's offspring. Nuclon has a sudden freakish growth spurt and shoots up to gigantic proportions, but it only lasts a moment, and then he shrinks back down to his normal 7'6 frame. Just in time for the law to arrive, hassle our heroes, and then watch helplessly as they all zoom away to take the Flash to the hospital. In Metropolis, Power Girl arrives, surveys the mysterious dome that has sprung up to seal the city off from the rest of the world, and acts like a complete bitch to Andrew Vinson, reporter uh, on the spot, and I had thought a friend of hers. A uh, work crew confirms that nothing but air seems capable of passing through but he's no sooner got the words out of his mouth when the barrier, or excuse me, when the group witnesses Superman zip right through the barrier and into the city. So on a whim, Power Girl tries to follow and finds that she too can pass right through the dome. Inside, she confronts her cousin, whom she suspects may have actually been responsible for the bar barrier in the first place, and it turns out that he is. It seems Superman... Well, he's just a little fed up with being what he calls a soaring eagle on a planet of ants. And he's decided to reshape first Metropolis and then the world into a smaller replica of his birthplace. Power Girl attempts to take him into custody, but his reflexes are still plenty fast and it looks like the fight is on. But of course, it's to be continued. 
In Gotham City, the Huntress feels that she knows exactly where Robin, who was turned evil last issue, where Robin will go, and she heads for Gotham Island Prison. Sure enough, she arrives just in time to prevent the former boy wonder from murdering aged, infirm boss Zuko, the killer of his parents, the Flying Graysons but not before she takes a severe ass-kicking from Robin. I mean, like, severe ass-kicking from Robin, too. It's brutal, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that. Oh, yeah. In Fall Springs, Colorado, Brainwave Jr. and the Star-Spangled Kid are confronted by the Ultra-Humanite, who, after recapping his origin and exploits up till now, confirms that it was he that turned Superman all evil and is also responsible for pitting the JSA against the Infinitors as his ultimate revenge scheme. Parents will battle child, family versus family. So then a brief battle ensues in which our heroes... Oh, so he's going to invent Facebook. <laughs> that would work. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to derail no, you there. No, it's funny. So after a brief battle, or excuse me, a brief battle ensues, rather, in which our heroes accidentally trigger an avalanche that seemingly buries them alive. Safe in his headquarters, Ultra scan, uh, runs a scan but finds no signs of life. His scheme is working. The JSA and Infinity Incorporated will fight. Some will fall. But no matter who dies, the ultra-humanite will win. Next issue, and I thought I had written this down, and it's not in my notes, so let's see. Next issue, A World Besieged by Its Heroes. Oh yeah. <laughs> now, so, you have the historical notes on this one, my friend. Yes, I do indeedy. If I could find them in the book, it would be even better. There you go. <laughs> Pay, uh, are there any notes for this one? Notes, okay. Um, issue 6 included a pinup and vital data sheep of Obsidian by Mike Macklin and Roy Thomas. Mm -hmm. Nuclon gains the ability to grow over 14 feet tall in this story. The new power is credited to his mutant genes being less stable than we thought. That ability, however, is later quietly allowed to fade away. Mutant genes, available at Kmart. First, yeah, they would be at Kmart. Now, now you would probably find them at Walmart put together by, you know, those, you know, Laotian children that Kathy Lee <laughs> Gifford has, you know, just hanging around. Uh, there's a joke from 10, 20 years ago. Uh, first appearance of Earth 2's boss Zuko since Robin de Robin's debut in Detective Comics number 38. And uh, they reprint in the book a, a panel that I'm sure we're going to get a little mileage out of conversation-wise. Uh, that just creeped the hell out of me, as a matter of fact. So, But uh, I guess I'll take lead on the notes for this one, since you did the synopsis. Sure. Uh, cover is great, except that it has Northwind talking. Uh, in which case... <laughs> I mean, it's like he's trying too hard. We've got to bring them in. Dead or alive! It's it's kind of like that, uh, you know, we, we, we joked about it years ago. Uh, with Family Guy and uh, everyone talking about Loose Lois 
And Ace Freely going, my Grand Slam was supposed to come with sausage. That's that's what I get out of this well, one. See, the very the, the, this should actually be a two-panel cover, and the next panel should be everybody just staring at him, and he's like, what? <laughs> what? I can be, like I can he, be like, tough. I can't. Like he just cut. Well, no, you can't. Not with that outfit. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to say, just a, across the board, the art is absolutely gorgeous throughout this entire book. Mm-hmm. The all of the characters just look iconic. the uh, The first part of this story with them being kind of pinned under the the Green Lantern created uh, vice spiky thing, and then Obsidian and Jade come in. I, I will have to admit the excuse me the new clone growing really tall and then getting dizzy. I'm glad they kind of got rid of that because that's a very Marvel from the '60s problem, right? Like, my power might be killing me. So, um, and I don't think you need that in DC, because it just doesn't fit. Uh, the, the Power Girl sequence, Andrew Vincent's part of it, um, yeah, I thought they were, like, dating over in the Huntress. That's what I thought. It's funny you say it, because I, I almost put that as a note, like, like, or you put that into my synopsis, it's like, why is she such a bitch to her boyfriend? And I thought, well, maybe I'm just not remembering that right. So I'm glad you said that, because I had the same impression. I thought they were getting it on. So what the hell is this all about? Is this after he dumped her or she dumped him or they broke up or, you know, whatever? It was just odd. I really didn't understand it. I mean, she really is rude to him. Page nine, uh, the fourth panel, Superman looks absolutely evil. Yeah. Uh, and below that, you have a really nice, like, shot of his origin on Krypton and getting launched away. And this is continued on the next page where they're flying against each other. And you want to hear something funny? What? Is I saw that panel, you know, and there's a whole great thing here. I really love that speech that Superman gives. Yes. But I read this back-to-back with the All-Star issue that we just read. So I started to type out a note saying, well, what the hell? He just said last issue that he didn't know his origins. And then I suddenly I was like, oh, wait, 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 40 years later. Yeah, that felt, yeah, duh. <laughs> I felt stupid, but that's the problem with reading these in quick succession like that, you know? Um, the, um, much like the, the artwork with uh, the Earth 2 Robin looking just... I mean, he never really looked better than he did here, except maybe as drawn by George Perez. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I say that with all due respect to some of the other artists that did a really good job with him. I just think Ordway had a way of drawing the costume where it looked really good. The Huntress, though, she is a full-figured woman. And it's mm-hmm. really odd seeing that, especially you know as compared to contemporary comics, where she's thick. And I'm not saying she's fat or she's ugly or anything like that. She's just muscular and toned, like somebody who worked out would be. So I really appreciate that. And all of that was kind of taking a back seat to the bottom panel on page 13, which made me really freaking uncomfortable. Yeah. Because he's got her on the ground. He's pinning her arm behind her back. And, you know, we talked about this before. I'm sorry, it looks like he's got his crotch over her rear end. It does, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this isn't an Alan Moore book, so something salacious isn't going to happen. But it's just, Ordway really went out of his way to show a 
brutalized Helena. Mm-hmm. And it made me uncomfortable. And it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. There's right. nothing in this artwork that made me think that he was doing this, you know, to, to kind of turn the reader on, which I think some artists would do. Uh, but no, you know, having read interviews and done interviews with Ordway, I, I, I know for a fact that's not what he's, that's not what his thought process is. But Thomas and Ordway and Al Gordon really come together in this one. I think of all of the evil heroes, Robbins is the one that I actually feel bad for him about. Because not only is he trying to get Boss Zuko, he mentions at one point, you know, Bruce got to deal with the killers of his parents and deal with them. And now he's sitting here, but Huntress, you know, points out he's unconscious, so he can't hear her, you know, that Zuko's fried. Zuko's mind is gone. He's He has to be on, you know, uh, he requires machines to keep him alive. I mean, it's just, this this whole thing is just really sad. Yeah. And unfortunately, the issue is kind of downhill from there. Because everything with the Ultra Humanite is important to the plot. It just involves Brainwave Jr., who I like him better than Northwind, but that's really not saying much. And I like the Star Spangled Kid, but I just, it's just like I've, I, I lost interest about halfway through the sequence. Yeah. I just, I just didn't care. It was sad. It was just like, okay, this is good. It's part of the plot. We're advancing the Ultra Humanite part of it. We're hearing his major thing. I really just want to get back to the heroes fighting the heroes. Well, plus that last panel on page 16 looks like the Ultra Humanites eating a piece of bacon and going, yeah. It's, it's really, <laughs> yes. really weird. I, I just realized something. You know, you were saying how how the Earth to Robin was seldom drawn better. I completely agree with you from like the neck down, but there was something that was bugging me in this, and I can't believe it didn't really occur to me until flipping back through the issue again. And then I looked here. Now, literally hanging on the wall next to me, I have one of those. Uh, DC Universe uh, Infinite Heroes figures. It's the Earth 2 Robin one. And okay. I suddenly realized what it was that was bugging me about this that I couldn't put together before is in this issue, Robin has a wraparound like Zorro style mask. But the version yes. of this costume I like best is the one where he has the mask that I can really only describe it as it looks like Captain America's nomad style, you know, where it's it's like a full mask. Oh, like a like, like a like a half cow. A half cow, exactly, where the hairline is sticking out of the top of it. I actually I typically I hate that kind of thing, but I like it with this Robin outfit. It's just the way I'm used to seeing it. And I I guess I didn't realize that he changed it. I just it, it just never occurred to me before. I actually like both. There's something about this, the mask that we see in this issue. That's not like your typical Robin Domino type mask. Right, yeah. It's a lot thicker, and you called it the Zorro, and I think that's a good, accurate way to do it. I really like that, but I also like the idea of having kind of the headgear look, too. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I don't know where I was reading or listening to, but some people were kind of slagging off on this, on the Earth 2 Robin outfit. Yeah. And I'm just like, you know, you're welcome to your opinion, but you're wrong. Yeah. So, uh, 
yeah, we can we can just we could just agree not to talk about it because I I think as it evolved into with the Neil Adams design and uh, again the way Ordway and Perez drew it, especially in Crisis where it just looked amazing. Uh, I just it it's the one thing that really kept me from being truly creeped out by the sequence mm-hmm. because. I think they were taking advantage of the fact that this was a direct sales book only. Right. So it wasn't going to be on the stance. And I'm not seeing a Comics Code Authority stamp on this. On the cover. Right. So, you know, it's 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 not as... I mean, we, we, we've gotten so much worse today. I mean, in Forever Evil number 5, we saw Sinestro literally use his ring to create a construct to... And this is a spoiler warning for somebody, you know, for those who may not have read Forever Evil number five. But the way I see it, by the time this issue, this episode comes out, it's going to be a couple months. So, you know, I feel pretty safe. But in that is- issue, Sinestro uses a ring construct of a saw to cut off Power Ring's arm on camera. And it's kind of funny where this is more disturbing and less happens. Right. And I think that's kind of the power of the scene. And, you know, I don't want to see a woman being brutalized. But at the same time, we've seen men get completely... I mean, poor Flash was, you know, basically at death's door, you know, at the end of the last issue. So if Helena is going to be in this line of duty, she's going to face that sort of thing. And it's nothing... And, you know, some people might say, well, it's, you know, it's brutalizing women and that's wrong. And I agree, you know, brutalizing women for the sake of brutalizing women, especially in in popular entertainment, is wrong. But she is in a knockdown drag out fight with basically her older brother, Mm -hmm. who is intent on killing a man, and she knows that if he does it, he'll never forgive himself. So she's fighting with all she has, and Robin's just that much little bit better than her. And so that's what happened. So, you know, as creepy as that page is, and it's creepy, the overall scene is just very, very powerful. I agree. I agree with you. Uh, my last note is in the letters column, there is a there is a letter from Brad Meltzer, a uh, uh, writer of bunch of different novels uh, that are suddenly escaping me, but comic book wise, Identity Crisis, he wrote the first 12 or so issues of Justice League of America when it was relaunched. He wrote a really great storyline in Green Arrow that I that I really liked. Uh, so it's just kind of interesting. He, uh, he has a theory that Obsidian and Jade's mother is a phantom lady. And you know what? I actually like that theory. Hmm. Uh, it kind of makes sense given Obsidian's power. I don't know. I probably, at the time, I probably loved that idea, but now knowing who she does hook up with, I, I don't know if I would have liked that as much, because I, I really like who she ends up hooking up with, so. I don't know. But yeah, I, I mean, it's a perfectly valid theory, especially like you say, given uh, Obsidian's power set and everything, yeah, it makes sense. Definitely yeah. makes sense. Uh, but that's all I got. Oh, okay. I don't have a whole lot of notes on this issue. I really dug it. 
Um, no offense to Mike Macklin, but I like the art much better in this sh- this issue than some of the prior issues, and I, I do think it is largely because of the inking. Uh, I just I, I think the ink job was really really good in this, and I think it really accentuated um, Ordway's art style because I like Ordway a lot. I really do. I, I consider myself a big fan of his, but. It has to look a particular way. It has to be inked a particular way. And some inkers really do him justice, and then others I'm not so sure. But I really dug the art in this issue. I thought it was very well done, especially the shading uh, portions of it. Um, page 9. Man, I love, I love any time we get a, a serious, honest glimpse into either Superman's dark side or into like his innermost like private feelings like you know even when it's just him having a moment whether it's self-doubt whether it's thinking you know am i doing the right thing or whether it's uh in this case where granted he's been turned to the dark side but i love this where he has been frustrated by being the most powerful guy in the world and having to deal with everybody else is basically beneath him. Something he would never normally express or share or even allow himself to really feel. But here Mm -hmm. with his dark side exposed and, and right out in the open, it's great to hear him actually vent this frustration. I, I love this scene. I thought that scene was great and I'm really looking forward to the, the battle between uh, he and Power Girl next issue. That's going to be really cool. But as cool as that was, my favorite part of the whole issue was definitely the uh, the Robin sequence, you know, Robin versus Huntress and the whole Boss Zuko thing. I, I just thought it was very well written, very well handled. I love the art. And, uh, yeah, I'm with you, man, uh, Mike. You know, I don't give a damn what anybody says. I, I'm not exaggerating when I say that this Robin outfit, the Ro- Earth 2 Robin outfit, is one of my favorite comic book mm-hmm. outfits. I just love it. I think it's a great look. I've always thought it was a cool costume. So, yeah, sorry anybody that doesn't like it, but I love it. Uh, let's see. <laughs> yeah, this is my this is my wacky one for the for the issue. All right, so panel three. Page 19. So, all right, so setting this up, (laughs) Ultra's standing there, and it gets to the point where, all right, he's had his moment of exposition and everything, and the heroes realize, okay, now is our moment. So Brainwave zaps him with a a brain blast, and uh, Star Spangled Kid hits him from the other side with whatever the hell blast power he does. Ultra goes down on his knees, and he does something in this chest plate pops open and it has a remote control in it like it looks like a tv remote i'm not kidding and i'm just thinking tv remote in your chest plane i I can't decide if that's like a brilliant idea or a terrible idea i mean it's pretty convenient but i like that Uh, i don't know what was it a tv show or movie where they actually had the toilet built into the recliner (laughs) right yeah that's uh idiocracy yeah yeah but you know can you imagine, like, if he was sniped by a sniper and, uh, you know, it doesn't kill him, but it it breaks his TV remote? <laughs> oh, no. Now I'm stuck on PBS. Why, <laughs> God? Why? All right. Also, 
on this same page. All right, so he he pops the chest plate open, pulls out his remote, hits the button, and he's protected by a, a force field, right? That's that's projected all around him. And the Star Spangled Kid, I don't know what the hell he's doing. He looks like he's just running circles around the dome. But B- Brainwave blasts his, well, his Brainwave power at the Ultra U- Humanite, and it's shown just deflecting off of the force field. And I'm thinking, now, dude, I don't care how awesome your force field is. How the hell does it stop Brainwaves? How does that happen? How does that work? Now, I posted this, as soon as I read this issue, I posted this up on Facebook because it was just aggravating the hell out of me. I'm like, I want to know what other people think of this because I think this is patently ridiculous, right? And somebody, I want to say maybe it was John Wilson, but I'm not sure, but somebody had pointed out that, well, you know, brainwaves, aren't they part of the electromagnetic spectrum and all that, and so they're susceptible to force fields and all that sort of thing? And I'm thinking, are they? I mean, do we know that? Like, scientifically, <laughs> do we know that? You know, I'm not trying to be an asshole. I'm just, I, I'm serious. Do, I mean, scientifically speaking, has that been proven? Do we know that brain waves are part of the EM spectrum? Because I'm thinking, wasn't there an episode of Star Trek where they were trying to come up with a way for, like, to block, um, like, like mental shit? With like the like the shielding or something like that, so like like Deanna would stop getting headaches or some ridiculous stupid thing, and they weren't able to do it or something. Every, every time Deanna opened her mouth with "I'm sensing," I just kind of check out of the scene. Right. So. <laughs> but I, it seems to me now I could be dead wrong. I, I mean, I'm pulling this out of wherever, but it seems to me that there was an episode where Data said something about. Um, there's no known technology to block Betazoid telepathy or some, some bullshit like that. And I'm thinking, yeah, cause it's, you know, it's telepathy. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I realize that's Star Trek and this is Infinity Inc., but still, I, I don't know. There was just something about that panel that was bugging me. Like, how does that work? How can a force field stop something that's coming from your brain. I just didn't get that at all, but I don't know. I'd be very curious to have the the listeners write in and give me your opinion. What do you think? Should it be able to deflect everything, including brainwaves? And if it works that well, then how does he breathe while he's in there? You know, I mean, that's another thing is force fields that deflect everything from blow torches to the atomic bomb, yet air molecules can pass through it. How the hell does that work? So then, yeah, you survive the bomb, but then you're going to be irradiated and die. So I don't get that either. Yeah, page 20, panel 4. This just helped remind me of uh, of why I was uh, like uh, the Star Spangled Kid so much. I actually liked this, this sequence. I, you know, the battle itself was like, eh, it was okay. But just that one shot of uh, Star Spangled Kid kind of streaking around like Superman style I thought was pretty cool. Because I do like him. Now, I like him a lot better in the identity that he eventually would adopt in this book. But I always did have a fondness for the Star Spangled Kid. And I think that owes essentially out of, you know, All-Star Comics number 58. Just, you know, he was in it. He was on the cover. He always looked really cool. And so I always had like a sentimental attachment to him without him ever really 
let's be honest, between that book where we started this show and now, has he really ever done anything all that spectacular? Not really. He just has a cool look and kind of a cool power set. But, you know, he's just one of those characters I can't really explain why I like him. I just kind of like him. And this, this issue kind of helped remind me why I thought he was cool. And very last note, yeah, I kind of dig the uh, Obsidian, um, what you call it, pinup here. I'm not much of a fan of the character, but that's a pretty cool pose. I like that. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I don't know if I've ever asked you, what's your, what's your opinion on Obsidian? I like him. Uh, I, I think he was kind of mishandled a bit, and when Gerard Jones was writing Justice League America, mm-hmm. I, I just, I just didn't care for what he was doing, and it was a little off-putting that he essentially became like another Brainwave Junior, yeah. uh, in the in the opening stories of Justice of just of J, of the JSA title, yeah, um. But I think they used his backstory and Ian Carcool, you know, able to kind of like manipulate him and then eventually having that turn turned back on him. You know, it, it made for a dramatic story. So the fact that eventually he comes out of that and actually became a supporting character in Manhunter for a little while hmm. when that book was still around. They, the one with the, uh, you know, with I, the female manhunter is that the one? Yeah, damn it! I need to go back and finish reading that book. I keep saying that, and I, I don't ever do it, but I need to do that. Yeah, especially since Iron Monroe. I know that's the point. thing is I, I think I stopped <laughs> reading it before that revelation too. So I really need to read that. Wearing his white pants and black t-shirt, <laughs> uh, which just does not look good at all. The uh, but no, I Obsidian of the members of Infinity Inc. Uh, I feel closest and, you know, to, quote-unquote, closest to Nuclon, Obsidian, and Jade. And really, really, I think that has a lot that has a lot to do with the fact that they're the ones that stuck around after Infinity Incorporated was over. Th- this is true, yeah. It's funny but, that you would focus on those, though, because I, I they, yeah, that kind of, that, that just makes me laugh. That is not the three I would have thought you would say. No, because, you know, like you, I love what they did with Al Rothstein in JSA. Mm-hmm. He became Adam Smasher. Yeah. I think they took him on a great arc where he had to face his own dark side uh, and, and had to kind of atone for that. And Jade, in addition to just having something for green women, uh, which is odd because I was never really a big Star Trek fan growing up, <laughs> and yet I always liked green women, you know, their appearances in, like, the Superman books, they were they showed up in the Flash annual... And then she was like a major supporting character during the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern series. Right. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I think everyone hated Kyle. Because no one likes when the new guy moves into town and he's artistic and he's got a leather jacket. And right out of the gate, he dates two of the women that you had a thing for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and he shows up. Donna Troy, she breaks up with him, moves on to Jade. Mm-hmm. You So, but Jade was always, to me, she was, her relationship to Alan Scott and then to Kyle, it created this great bridge between the Green Lantern generations to me. And I just, I just always liked those characters. Northwind we make fun of all the time, so I think it's pretty clear how I feel about him. And, you know, I like Fury, but really... She doesn't do much after Infinity Incorporated's gone, and then she's over in Sandman, and then she's kind of back... 
in JSA and Hector. I liked him as Dr. Fate. I never really liked him as the Silver Scarab. I It's mostly because I really don't like that name. Right. You know, it's, it's just, you know, if, if like they had, if like he had taken on another hero name, I might've had a better affinity for him. But, um, no, those are the three that I like. Hmm. Cool. Oh, that and uh, Solomon Grundy. <laughs> Wants pants, too. And my wife in the other room, just as you were saying that, <laughs> says the same thing. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I got on this issue, though. Uh, I dug it. I-, I think it's getting better. I think it's getting better. Well, to kind of finish this issue, this ep- issue sode, because <laughs> we keep screwing up with that. <laughs> Uh, to finish this episode out, we are going to hop into Rip Hunter's Time Machine over at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. He was so nice to write into us. Now we're going to once again use his uh, use his website to uh, give us content. Cool. So uh, thank you, Mike. We are looking at the September 1984 books by publication date. So first thing that stands out for me is that beautiful Paris Cullen's cover of Best of DC number 52. Uh, it's funny you say that because I actually have this and it wasn't until I blew it up. To, to, uh, I was curious who the penciler was that said Paris Cullen's. I was just going to ask you, hey, did you know that's Paris Cullen's? Never realized it before. I see more Dick Giordano, who's the artist or excuse me, the inker in there in that piece than I see Paris Cullen's. But it, it's still really cool. I always like that cover. That's actually an issue I do own on that. And you were commenting before we got started that, man, this is a month where I own like most of the books here. I'm the yeah. same way. I'm looking at this going, hey, I think I own pretty much everything that's here. With the exception of the Wonder Woman issue, the GI Combat issue, the Amethyst Annual, the New Talent Showcase, Thriller, Warlord, the uh, the movie adaptation, which I know you're excited to talk about, and the Warlord Annual, I've got everything else mm-hmm. from this month, including that beautiful Blackhawk cover. And with, with apologies uh, to my friend Robert Kelly, who is hopefully listening, because uh, we're kind of in his wheelhouse with this. Uh, one of the things that really keeps me from reading this era of Blackhawk is the Dan Spiegel art. Yeah. Uh, because I just don't care for him as an artist. So, you know, I know he has his fans, Robert Kelly being one of them. Uh, and he's like one of the few people I've ever really heard make passionate arguments for Dan Spiegel's art. So I always kind of respect when people are able to just like dig in their heels and go, no, I like this guy. Right. Uh, because there are people, there are artists that I like like that. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to mock Dan Spiegel, but I'm just going to say I'm just not a really big fan of his art style. And that's really kept me from digging into this Blackhawk. Yeah, I got your back. I don't like him either. Um, There's just something about it. However, that said, I kind of like this cover. It's uh, Uncle Adolf being cornered in an alley by the spider signal. I actually think that's kind of cool. (laughs) But, uh. Ooh, you know, it pains me to say it because you, you know, I'm I'm an on again, off again fan of the guy, but this uh, Carmen Infantino cover, probably largely because it's inked by Klaus Jansen, but this cover to a DC Comics Presents number, what the hell issue is this? I can't see what the issue. Oh, 73, Superman and the Flash. That is not an attractive cover. I'm sorry. 
No, Superman looks a little beefy, a little porky, yeah. as our good friend Andy Leyland would say. He does, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't care for that one. That that Justice League of America cover with the two Mar- the Martians fighting with the the floating heads looking on, except for Hawkman, who obviously has just been distracted by something over in the other side of the room. <laughs> Ooh, shiny. Um, now I'm not gonna again. It's, it's it's one of those things where I'm not going to sit here and insult somebody personally or really even artistically. But when you have this beautiful Chuck Patton cover. Mm-hmm. And you have Alan Kupperberg artwork on the inside. It's just kind of a, it's a little bit of a letdown. It, it is. I like Chuck Patton. I mean, yes. he he was not around for long. He came in. He had, he made a brief splash, mostly in Justice League, as I recall, mm-hmm. and then just buggered off to wherever the hell he's been all these years, and and said the hell with comics. And it's a shame because damn, the guy could draw. I mean, I Robert really Kelly tracked stuff. him down. What's that? And. Robert Kelly tracked him down and interviewed him. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that on the Fire and Water? Uh, I think that's on the uh, AquamanShrine.net. Oh. You know, we really should talk about that All-Star Squadron annual at some point. <laughs> Been there, done that. I'm trying to this see is... who did the R. Okay, this is a, uh, Joey Cavalieri and Stan Walk backup story uh, in Wonder Woman there with the Huntress. I was just curious. Mm-hmm. That. I think I have that issue, but I, I couldn't remember who. Again, speaking of issues that are really expensive on the secondary market. No, no joke, uh, dude. The Bronze Age Wonder Woman is just like, wow. Because <laughs> I'm still trying to track down the Gene Colan issues. Plus, I still have scattered issues with, uh, with Huntress backups that I mm-hmm. would like to have. But I'll be damned if I'm going to pay more than like a buck a piece for those. And you just yeah. can't find them. You cannot find them, and you know for that price, and it's ridiculous. Because frankly, most of them aren't worth that. Especially if you know, like you are talking about, just the Huntress backup story issues. Because the Wonder Woman story in the front, most of them suck. I won't bother to read them anyway. So you know, you're essentially paying for what, like eight pages of a Huntress yeah. backup story. I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm not paying more than a dollar a piece for those. So if I never get them to hell with it, I never get them. This is a great era for Batman and detective. Mm-hmm. As we've talked about in the past, this uh, Batman issue. Now, Ed Hannigan did the cover and it looks great, but this is a Don Newton. Oh yes. Interior. So, you know, and with Alfredo Alcala doing the, doing the inking on it. So, and this was uh, around the time of, the whole uh, Nocturna taking custody of Jason. I love that stuff. Away from Bruce. So just just a great time for the Batman books. Really overlooked, but now getting reprinted thanks to the various Tales of the Dark Knight Gene Colan and Tales of the Dark Knight Don Newton, which I kind of oh, wonder wow. how you can do that because... These books were like the Superman books uh, in the 90s. They were connected one right. right to the other. Right, yeah. So, but, if, uh, but, but speaking of an era that was just begging to be reprinted, starting when Jerry Conway first started to connect the two titles, going all the way basically up to the crisis, That's a, that would be a great collection of trade paperbacks to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, a, with a very melodramatic... To be fair, uh, a lot of Batman staring off and wondering, you know, where Jason is and what he's doing and is he thinking of him and all that. So, but just some really good classic Bronze Age Batman, in my opinion. Right. 
uh, with all the subplots. Uh, I have had Jim, Son of Saturn, for about ten years now, and I still have not read it. <laughs> I don't know. I may have eventually acquired more issues. Hell, I might even have the whole series at this point. But at one time, I only had two issues. I had the first issue, bought it the day it came out off the stands, read it, and thought, eh, I don't think so. And then I bought the issue with, uh, with Superman just because it was, of course, it's Superman, but also it was Superman by Colin, who had already fallen in love with on, um, on Phantom Zone. But yeah, I, I've never read it either. It just, I don't know. I mean, I've heard mixed things about it, but it just, it didn't really appeal somehow. It, it, to me, it came off like exactly what it was. It was somebody at DC's attempt to kind of cash in on ET. You know, the whole yeah. E.T. phenom, and, and I think it reads that way, so. Now, I know Batman and the Outsiders has its detractors, but that cover of the first annual is mm-hmm. just beautiful. Just looks great. This is the one with the Force of July, isn't it? Yes, yeah. and I love that group. Yeah, I do, too. I, the the lead guy, whatever the hell his name was, I always thought... Major he, Victory. Yeah, I, I always thought he had a great... He looks a lot like Skyman to me, and I, I yeah. always like that. I always thought that was cool. He's like a combination of, like, Skyman and, like, uh, Team America or something. I always thought that was cool. (laughs) You said that with a straight face. You said (laughs) Team America with a straight face. Um, Dude, when they, before they got their own book and proved what the suck they really were, when they were, when they guest starred in uh, Captain America, like, once or twice, I actually thought they were pretty cool. Of course, that was Mike Zack, you know? So Mike Zack could make anybody look cool, but, uh. Yeah, and then they got their own book, and I'm like, wait, why did I like these guys again? <laughs> uh, Blue Devil number four has a really nice cover with Blue Devil and Zatanna teaming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, DC Comics presents annual number three with Shazam and Savannah getting the powers of Shazam and going through ranks. <laughs> it's one of the things I love about the story is, like, I'm Captain Savannah. No, I'm Major Savannah. No, I'm General Savannah. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a cute story. Um Carol Ferris really fussing Green Lantern out on the cover of Green Lantern number 180. This is in trade paperback now. Is it? Uh, f- starting with the beginning of the Len Wein, Dave Gibbons era, going all the way up through, I think, at least the first eight issues of Green Lantern Core, you can get all of that stuff in trade paperback now. Hmm. They reprinted... All of that stuff from Len Wein all the way up to 200 and three, three different trade paperbacks. So it's really, I'm just glad it's out there readily available to people who, you know, don't feel like back issue diving. So, right. Legion of Superheroes number two. I made a discovery last night that I have every issue of Legion going from Le- Superboy and Legion of Superheroes number 216 all the way up to issues 121 of the post zero hour series. Wow. Um, and that's just been through 10 years of picking up things and here and there and 50 cent boxes and stuff. So yeah, at some point I'm going to have to sit down and read all of that because, uh, some good recently, stuff in there, man. I recently picked up for a pretty decent price, including shipping a beautiful copy of the treasury edition with the wedding of lightning lad and Saturn. That's Girl. the one that, uh, J David Weider sent me not long ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, Supergirl number 23, love that costume. (laughs) I love that costume, and I will keep talking about it. Action Comics number 559 has the yellow Perry in it. Yeah. 
uh, who's a character I've never really glommed onto, but didn't she start out in New Adventures of Superboy? Yes, she did. Yeah. I think she was uh, actually adapted into what was it? The, the Superboy, Superboy TV show. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Detective Comics number five forty two. Another really beautiful cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, the end with a question mark, and then we have Star Trek movie special number one. All right, this is worth owning if you ever see it on the cheap simply because it has a gorgeous, and I mean gorgeous, Howard Chaykin cover on it. However, everything else about it is just crap. It's, <laughs> I mean, I, I, it pains me to say it, but DC's adaptations of the Star Trek movies all sucked. They were all just so weak, mostly so because of the art. That. But the cover, uh, actually the covers to most of their Star Trek specials and annuals were generally phenomenal. I mean, really, really good. And this is one of the best. This could be a poster. And it it actually looks a lot like it, it's taken from a movie poster. But to the best of my knowledge, this is all original art by Chaykin, but it's really, really fantastic. So if you ever see it like in a 50-cent bin or something, it's it's worth owning just for the cover. But just, you know... Know ahead of time that you you don't want to open it because <laughs> it ain't pretty. <laughs> but no, I just uh, really good month. Uh, the only other one I got here is uh, this uh, Warlord Annual Number Three is act actually on my active want list right now because all right here here you go here's my my severe geek out moment for the episode but uh, I, I think I may have mentioned this before that I'm trying to track down what I call the comics of Walt Disney World, essentially comics that are actually on display somewhere on property at Walt Disney World. And there's a restaurant over in Disney's Animal Kingdom theme park that is all dinosaur themed. And in the section, they have like just tons of comic books in there, all with dinosaur themed covers on them. And this Warlord Annual Number 3, where he has slain a dinosaur, is one of the covers that's up there. And it's like, okay, so I want that issue, because I want to build the same collection that they have on display there. And uh, I've been trying to find it on the cheap. Haven't haven't scored it yet, but I figure I will eventually. Because for some reason, Warlord is one of those titles that I see all the time at like flea markets and stuff for like 50 cents an issue or less, so... I'll probably get it one of these days. I have managed to build a hell of a collection of Warlord just picking it up on the cheap like that. And so if I keep going, eventually I'll probably have most or all of the series, I figure. I probably have... Yeah, like that's a not on my... That's not high on my list, but I have enough of it that eventually, if, like you said, if you see it in like 50 cent bins and stuff, that I'll just fill out a fill out a run because I'm, I'm not much of a sword and sorcery guy. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this before with Warlord, I'm sure. Uh, but I, there's something about it that just is intriguing. Mm-hmm. And especially, you know, that it was started by Grell and then Dan Jurgens. Yeah. Uh, came on to it and all that. And, you know, the, the even going down to the Legends crossover. Right. Uh, was kind of interesting. So just, just, uh, uh you know, it, it I mentioned him a couple other times, but you know Robert Kelly and uh, Shag, the ira- the irredeemable Shag, you know, co-host the Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC universe, 
where they literally go through every, through an issue of who's who character by character. Right. Talking about each one of them. And every time I get to the end of an episode, I, it is, there is this reaffirmation. It's just, it's kind of like, you know, when Catholics get up once a year and, you know, have their reaffirmation of faith where they renounce Satan and all of his acts. At the end of every episode of Who's Who, I, I am reaffirmed as a DC fan. (laughs) This is, as much as I like Marvel characters, I mean, I love Cap, I love Hulk, I love Spider-Man. You know, we've got this, I mean, even the Guardians of the Galaxy movie looks amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of fun. But end of the day, you know, I'll camp out in Marvel. I'll, like, get an RV together and go and, like, stay at one of their little parks and stuff. But, yeah, I uh, I just love the DC Universe so much. So, eventually, like, every part of it I want to learn about. I agree. So. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, what do we got next time around? Next time we have on this show, we have another JLA JSA crossover with uh, with comics that are not where I put them. So <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. So I'm going to vamp for time a little bit as I pull the issue. Where the hell did I put those? Okay, I've got Superman books. I know everyone's shocked. Oh, okay. Justice League of America number 231 and 232. It's a family crisis in a JLA-JSA crossover written by Kurt Busiek. Sweet. So, with Supergirl. All right. I guess that just leaves the reprint notes on this and as i'm looking here i'm going strictly by uh mike's amazing world it does not look like i thought that the infinity ink stuff had been reprinted though no they uh you know it's funny because uh something i actually i hope that i remember cutting out of an episode that aired a couple weeks ago they had solicited volume two of the generation saga and i guess orders just weren't there because it never came out so the whole thing didn't even get reprinted. What did they do? Like the first five issues? Yeah, they did the appearances in All Star Squadron, and then like the first four issues or so. That sucks, dude. So you can't even read the whole story then. Yeah. So apparently, at least according to what I'm looking at here, neither of the issues that we've covered tonight have been reprinted. Oh man. So how many issues of All Star Squadron were in that? Uh, it was a. Um, what do you call it? Not an essentials. What the hell? Is showcase. It? showcase. How many were in that showcase? I believe it was the first 14. That's it? That's about what a showcase holds. Wow. All right. Well, we need to, uh, we need to show DC that there's some interest out there by, uh, by getting our folks well, talking about it. Yeah. To be fair, the showcases have been pretty, uh, have been pretty badass. I mean, not only did we get the all-star squadron showcase, which reprints issues, I'm sorry, 1 through 18 and annual number 1. So it's a, it's a good chunk. Yeah, that's not bad. Uh, of the uh, of the first, uh, with a, with one of the Joe Kubert covers, but we won't go into that right now. But they also had uh, an All-Star Comics trade paper uh, showcase, which reprinted everything from All-Star 58, to the Adventure Comics number 466. 
plus the untold origin of the Justice Society. So basically everything that was in those two trade paperbacks, but in one book and in black and white. Wow. So you can get that too for, you know, depending on where you buy it from, you know, you know, eleven, twelve dollars. You know, so a lot of this stuff is slowly getting out there. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, the Crisis on Earth Prime storyline, which crossed over between Justice League and All-Star Squadron, has been reprinted in the sixth volume of the Crisis on Multiple Earth series. Right. So slowly but surely, All-Star Squadron is kind of bleeding out there into the, the collected uh, edition market. So uh, I, I was just kind of hoping that maybe they would do a second volume of the All-Star Squadron uh, showcases uh, since the last one came out in April of 2012. Uh, but, it, you know, I haven't even seen a Batman Volume 6. Uh, and that was back in 2011 when Volume 5 came out. So I don't know if they're slowing down on the showcases. I know they recently released the second volume of the DC Comics Presents stuff. So it's really weird what they're putting out there. But uh, for those of you who are catching up on the early episodes and maybe, you know, haven't, uh, you know, want to read these issues, haven't found them in your back issue bin... And maybe you don't want to pay for the the color trade paperbacks. Those showcases are an excellent way to keep up with the show and to read some great comics. Mm -hmm. You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally Back to the Bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytooth.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you. So you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, You'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks Network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. 